You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast with Nori. I'm Ross Kenyon. I'm one of the co-founders of Nori and the creative editor there. You're making me laugh. What are you What are you doing over there? <laughs> like a motorcycle just zoomed by right as you started. I, I, <laughs> I was like rushing to mute. <laughs> I didn't hear uh, any of it. So you must have oh, been good. very, very quick. It was a very loud motorcycle. <laughs> Siobhan Montoya Lavender, co-founder of Thanks a Ton, motorcycle enthusiast, Cuernavaca, Asa Kamer producer of Carbon Removal Newsroom. Hey, Asa. Hey, Ross. Hey. Hey, we have an air miner with us today that hey. we've been interacting textually for a long time. It's nice to get a chance to hang out in person. Grant Faber, founder of Carbon Based Consulting. Hey, Grant. Hello. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, happy to have you. You've been just a long-term staple of uh, air miners, like almost... Once I go down, like John Sand, well, obviously Tito and, and Jason, but then John is in my memory. These people here also, but then you're pretty close to the top of old school air miners. Is that even a true impression or did I just make that up? Uh, yeah, I, I think that's the case. I think I joined air miners back um, like spring or summer of 2019. So it's already been a few years here, uh, which is uh, sometimes when I think about that, it's hard to believe. But I've been with the community for a while. I actually helped Tito and Jason with like, this early air miner survey, which kind of led into the first conference, it kind of teed up for it. I mean, COVID also kind of influenced that first 2020 conference, but, but yeah, and that just all started from one post and look where we are today with all the events and such. So yeah, I definitely love the community. Well, you're a foundational member. I would, I would certainly say like Grant is involved in everything. So I know Grant because we worked on the conference together, but I also know Grant because we're in the um, environmental justice working group together. And then I feel like any kind of relevant thread that's getting a lot of traction on the Air Miners Slack channel is like, I'm usually following it because of whatever Grant's saying. Uh, that's a lot of pressure, <laughs> but <laughs> thank you. Will he live up to it? You be the judge, tweet angry things at Grant. What's your Twitter handle, Grant? <laughs> Oh, I'm not on Twitter, uh, so I can avoid angry tweets. <laughs> I also, I'm the same way too. I'm like, I don't want to get sucked into these. Like, I have things to do. It's like going to distract me and make me feel bad. If it's going to distract me, it should at least make me feel good at the end of it, <laughs> right? Angering people online. Definitely. That's why I'm on LinkedIn because it's so positive all the time. Yeah, more <laughs> professional. At least, yeah, things, people I follow. It's pretty, pretty positive business culture, so... This LinkedIn is positive. It definitely crosses into it's either like toxic positivity or like weird oversharing and nothing in between. <laughs> I feel like yeah, I do see that. Yeah, <laughs> that's true of a lot of social networks. Like I don't know where I don't know which social network has like really hit gold with like you know the right level of sarcasm and positivity and mental health. No, that doesn't exist. Man, there was like five seconds where Instagram was just people posting pictures of their family and dogs and mountains. And then it became just as political and just as like uh, kind of intense as every other space. Like, can't we have one space where we just look at dogs? Is there not, is there not space in the world for just one platform without politics in this way? Answer, <laughs> there is not. 
they don't they don't make money if we're not all angry and upset at each other. Oh, that's God. what the bucks are. That's probably what it is. That's I think it literally is. Yeah. Wow. Opening up a big tangent right to start it off. Yeah. <laughs> What's Brian's wrong with social media? Techno economic analysis of social media. Go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think what Ace is saying is, yeah, it has a big role. I mean, yeah, they do try to gamify the platforms to try to milk us for as many ad dollars as they can. But hey, there's maybe a business opportunity for a dog and cat focused social media network where every post is monetized and tied to a carbon removal offset. So, hey, you never know. There you go. There we go. Anyway, you guys wanted to have Grant on. This is the kind of <laughs> money printing idea session I was hoping for. I associate you so heavily with techno economic analysis. If you're listening and you heard the strange cadence of my voice, it's probably because I'm alluding to that is the thing that you do broadly, right? What is it? And what, what should people know about it? If this is just a nonsense uh, soup of words. Yeah, definitely. So yeah. Yeah. I usually say techno economic assessment or TEA. It goes by many names though. You might hear technical cost modeling or oh, wrong saying analysis is, should it be assessment? It kind of varies. I mean, there's this debate with like LCA and life cycle assessment. A lot of people call it life cycle analysis. Sometimes it's like a regional thing. In some ways, it doesn't really matter. But I often follow these guidelines from uh, the Global CO2 Initiative where I used to work. And they're always saying life cycle and techno-economic assessment. So that's just always what I tend toward to reduce lexical confusion. But it's all good. Anyway, the methodology TEA. So I've been working on that for a few years. And so I started at the Global CO2 Initiative, um, developing guidelines for uh, techno-economic assessment, specifically of carbon capture and utilization. You know, and, and like I was saying, there's these different names for TEA, and you know, many people have probably done uh, who are in this space. You know, especially our founders have probably done uh, TEA to some extent. At its most basic level, you might think of looking at the different factors that go into a given process, assigning cost factors to those. And more or less trying to find like a per unit cost of a particular process. You know, sometimes it might look like calculating operating expenses and capital expenditures. You can get pretty deep into it. It's supposed to be more tied to the technical aspects of the process versus being something more downstream, like a full-fledged financial model or a project finance model or anything like that. And so you might see you know, uh, an invention coming out of an academic lab or something, and they're trying to, maybe they're making a low carbon chemical or even some kind of new carbon removal pathway. They might be interested in doing TEA to figure out, okay, does this even have a chance at being cost competitive in the real world? Like, do, are the, is there even a chance that the unit economics could work out or are they five orders of magnitude too large? And so that's kind of one aspect. There's many goals of TEA in addition to that. So you might also think about just identifying general cost drivers and coming up with different methods to reduce the cost of a technology. Uh, you might think about meeting requirements, increasingly funders, whether it's government funders or investors are requiring both TEA and some kind of environmental or life cycle assessment in order to qualify for that funding. It starts a broader dialogue about cost within your company and gets people who may otherwise be very technically minded thinking about cost and what it might take to get something to work in the marketplace. So yeah, that's kind of a high level background on it. Man, I'm so glad you work on this so that I don't have to find some stuff. But I'm curious, there's lots of things that I, I want to be not an expert in, but knowledgeable about. Unit economics a lot and sound, <laughs> sound smart or what? I just want, you know, I, I remember this, like, um, I think I mentioned this, like Marcus extorted a, 
a keynote for the Air Miners event. And he said, one piece of advice I would give to you is learn something about economics. Like if you're a scientist, if your background, if you're a CDR nerd, like know something about economics. And I was like, oh shit, I should know something about economics, man. And since then I've been like slowly trying to like, just be better about not putting up that wall of like, I don't want to, I don't want to learn this. So I'm just going to put up a wall when I hear this stuff and instead think, okay, what are the pieces I can glean? How can I better understand this space? Because it is so crucial for CDR when you're talking about the explosion of an industry, like we need this industry to scale really rapidly. And so economics is, is a crucial factor there. Where should someone start, Grant? Sounds like you probably have training in economics in addition to some scientific disciplines. Maybe you could help guide Siobhan on the air here. How should she learn about economics? Yeah, definitely. So actually to um, kind of help the community with this, uh, in uh, my old job at the Global CO2 Initiative, I'm at the University of Michigan. One of the big projects I engaged in was building this website called Assess CCUS that has a bunch of free resources both for TEA and LCA uh, for these technologies. And they kind of walk people through in these different levels. And so there's just like a super high level introduction, like in two sentences, what it is. And then there's a slightly longer, you know, maybe in five paragraphs explaining what these things are. And then there's kind of longer pages, maybe five pages or, or so equivalent in a Word doc explaining like the detailed process of how one might go through one of these assessments. And then they also linked to the full guidelines from the Global CO2 Initiative, which are hundreds of pages, which explain um, like a standardized methodology to go through these things. And on this website as well, there are templates and calculators where you can kind of tinker around with these things and start to familiarize yourself with how they might look for, you know, a, a new kind of technical process. At like a different level, you could think too, often what these models are really trying to do is to take the material energy, labor, and equipment costs of a given process, and then just synthesize those and figure out how much that process might cost, you know, both now and in the future, if you're able to project forward, which is part of that method and maybe something we could talk about today in terms of cost reduction. But in some ways you could think about it, you know, it's just maybe like an analogy with your own household expenses. You know, we buy different raw material inputs like food to keep ourselves going and we have to pay our energy bills and we buy certain like equipment as in like furniture and televisions to, you know, stock our home. And uh, maybe we pay a repair person to come in and fix something. So we have like these labor expenses and all those together are like, you know, our budget that kind of allows us to subsist. And really the TEA is just like that, but, you know, with the director capture machine. I'm laughing because I'm thinking, I know Siobhan's a big office fan. It's like when Michael asked about the budget surplus, it's like your mommy and daddy give you $10 for a lemonade, a lemonade stand. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, explain this to me like I was a high schooler. Okay. Explain this to me like I was in second grade. <laughs> Did you ever do any, any, usually people start with microeconomics. Did you ever do any, any of that Siobhan or is it pretty blue skies for you? Um, in undergrad, I, I took econ classes. I took environmental econ, where at the time, this was about, you know, 2009, 2008, 2009. One of the things that forever stood out to me was like the pricing on human life, which at the time was around a million dollars. I don't know what it is today. Well, there's inflation. Um, there's also the devaluation <laughs> of human life. <laughs> it all gets mixed up. But yeah, no, I, I did that and I did environmental law. But mostly I just did kind of more environmental science and policy. Asa, I feel like you had a question. You were going to come off mute there. Well, I was just wondering if if this work you do, Grant, does it include the, I don't know if you'd call this, but like the carbon accounting, figuring out how carbon negative the project is, like all in, including the 
CO2 emitted to build the, the facility and the energy costs and everything. Is that part of what you do? Yeah, so that that is part of what I do. That strictly though is not within just a TEA because the TEA is usually looking at just you know like its name um, implies the technical and economic aspects of a process. The carbon accounting that would be you know more under the umbrella of life cycle assessment. Um, and so there's life cycle assessment where you look at the entire um, life of a product, all of its stages, and then you look at all the environmental impacts, as you, or as many as you possibly can anyway, ranging from emissions to water use to land use to eutrophication, to acidification, et cetera. So there's that. And then sort of the greenhouse gas accounting and carbon accounting is like a subset of that. And so those things actually, interestingly, can, the, these metrics that you might get can be paired. And so if you've ever seen like a levelized cost per ton of CO2 abated or a metric like that, you would calculate that by doing a TEA, figuring out, okay, let's say we have this, you know, low carbon diesel or something. Uh, what's the difference in the unit cost of the low carbon diesel to conventional diesel? And then you would do a similar kind of assessment, but for greenhouse gas emissions over some scope. And then you would say, okay, here's the difference in emissions. And then you can combine those indicators and just di- di- divide the differences uh, by one another to figure out, okay, what's kind of the cost per ton of you know, CO2 that we're reducing here. And that is a really useful metric for comparing technologies against other possibly very different technologies in terms of their decarbon or their, their like economic effectiveness of their uh, decarbonization potential. This might be a like super basic question, but when I've talked to people who don't know about carbon removal, what you off air called carbon removal models, I hope I'm okay to use that phrase. Um, we can edit it out if, uh, <laughs> but I loved it. I think that one of the first questions that comes up is like, well, is it even possible to know, you know, if it removes more CO2 than it costs to, to run it? And I understand why people have that cynicism after a lot of, you know, there's been a lot of greenwashing and there's been a lot of sort of techno-optimism around things like CCS, which hasn't necessarily panned out. And so maybe there's like a bit of skepticism that like this machine is just going to work. And I've also seen like some critics of CDR kind of have a bit of a, you know, imply like, oh, will we ever, will we ever really know? So I guess like, is it from your point of view, if you like, we could just talk about DAC or just like engineered solutions in general, because I would think that's a different category than ecosystem stuff. But is it possible? I mean, with what we know now, is it possible to say, to give like a certain project? Like, is it possible to know if it's carbon negative or not? Oh my God. How do you draw boundaries on these things? You saw what's this in, what's in scope, what's out of scope. I feel like that's the hardest thing when doing an LCA is just determining like what's in scope. Where do you stop? Because you can really go down the rabbit's hole with an LCA. We made that meme and... about it, right? Of the me inventing scope 14 emissions. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. But go ahead, Grant. You just got a juicy question pitched to you. I want to hear what you have to say. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So when you first started asking your question, I started thinking a little bit about like the history of life cycle assessment a little bit and how one of its big, uh, I mean, it was in use before this, but it, it really was helpful in arguing for solar PV actually, uh, maybe in the 90s or so, because, you know, obviously solar doesn't have these operational emissions or its operational emissions are much, much smaller relative to some you know, alternative fossil-based electricity generation pathway. But, you know, people started saying, well, what about the silicon that, you know, gets mined for these? What about the glass? What about the steel? What about the concrete foundations? I bet you didn't think about that. And the truth was, you know, a lot of people maybe didn't think about that, but 
what life cycle assessment allowed for was a way to actually quantitatively look at every step from raw materials extraction all the way to the end of life of the solar panel and say, okay, you know, here, here's every flow, you know, you can actually do a whole heat and mass balance of this whole process and see, here's all the material and energy coming into this process. Here's all the material coming out, the energy coming out, the waste that's generated. And then you can use, you know, scientific data on the environmental impacts of all those things and then multiply it all and add it all together and get a sense of, you know, what's this total, total impact on the environment from this process. So really, you know, when you apply that to CDR, it's no different than applying it to, you know, solar PV or even all these other things that LCA has been applied to over the years, like ethanol or, you know, different food packaging or different food items or really anything. It kind of is the basis for these claims and how we know, you know, oh, this is better than another thing. And so I would say with, we can know with a probably pretty high degree of confidence that, you know, a certain process is carbon negative. You know, we can look at its upstream and all the inputs going into that process and say, okay, it requires X amount of steel, Y amount of concrete, Z amount of sorbent. And, you know, there's definitely data gaps. There's definitely uncertainty, but even sometimes if that uncertainty is extremely large, you might use so little of a given input for how much carbon you might be injecting and permanently storing underground, that even with massive uncertainty, you still know with a pretty high degree of confidence that something is carbon negative. Um, now, of course, there can be other environmental and social trade-offs, and that's something we can get into talking about. It's not always easy to manage all those trade-offs, but I would say it's certainly possible to, to have a pretty good idea. Nice. Very I cool. I always want to be such an absolutist on the boundaries, though, because there is some arbitrariness just inherent to drawing boundaries. Like you have to decide what is outside of the system. And we did a show on LCAs years and years ago, and I ended up bringing up there's an essay, Grant, maybe you've read it. Have you ever read iPencil? I don't think so. Uh, it's sort of a classic of like free market microeconomics. People love to bring it up. But the conceit of it is that no one knows how to make a pencil. Like all of the trades that go from lumber to graphite to the eraser, the rubber. Uh, and then once you get into the secondary effects of producing the machines that made that material, and then all the food that goes into supporting all of the laborers and all of their housing, basically every act of consumption is consuming the entire world economy that is so interconnected that there essentially is no boundary. The entire planet makes a pencil. And I broadly buy that case, um, which makes me a terrible LCA person because I don't think I could do it without feeling arbitrary. But maybe you've solved it. Maybe you're okay with the level of arbitrariness. Maybe it's neg negligible, which sounds like kind of maybe where you're going with that. Yeah, you know, I've had that thought as well. And so when I was in grad school, I actually brought this issue up to my advisors who were very deep in the LCA world. And I was having like a moment of panic. I was like, but everything's connected. And what about the machines that make the machines that make the machines? And it's like, we could go all the way back to like Acheulean hand axes, you know, millions of years ago, like car carving the first, you know, skins to make textiles or whatever, like uh, you could go back a long ways. And yeah, how do you meaningfully do anything, you know, but their response was sort of, well, it's kind of negligible or it's just kind of like not relevant. Uh, and of course, maybe they were biased. Maybe they were saying these things because they've invested their whole lives in this methodology and or their whole you know scholarly professions in this and published so many papers and couldn't possibly just say, oh, wait, that's a good point. Like it's all nonsense or whatever. But um, I think there is something there where it's like, okay, we know that burning coal is a problem, is one of the you know big contributors to emissions or raising cattle or, or these things. And so 
what do we need to do to do less of those things? And it seems like, okay, well, if we can do something that just uses less energy for the same function that, well, then we need less coal, or if we have excess solar PV that we can, you know, uh, electricity, we can put that to different kinds of products that maybe wouldn't have had that energy otherwise, or, oh, if we, you know, use less coal and steel making or something like that and have some alternative method, that's just one fewer source of, of emissions. And I think, you know, when you really dig into it, it, it's pretty reasonable to tie these things like, okay, if you took every American household and just swapped out, you know, the incandescent bulbs with LED bulbs, then every year so much less energy would be used. That would just take this giant strain off and we'd have to burn less coal, you know, and let few, fewer resources and that that would just save emissions. And so, yeah, I think maybe in that comparative sense, it, it can be valuable and, and useful. Like it's probably better to use less energy than to use more. And it's probably better, you know, correspondingly to emit less carbon than more. So there's that, you know, there definitely are rebound effects of like, well, what about all the money that gets saved from less energy consumption? Because what if you save money on not having to buy as much energy because you're using an LED light instead of an incandescent? But what if you spend that excess money on taking a vacation that you wouldn't otherwise have taken and now you burn all these emissions? Oh, you're blowing my mind right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's a problem, which is kind of tricky, but there, there is a whole field of consequential uh, the skull <laughs> emoji there. But yeah, it's difficult. There is a field of consequential life cycle assessment that tries to take you know, these marginal impacts into consideration and tries to account for these rebound effects. You know, your car can go has higher miles per gallon. Maybe you'll drive more and burn more fuel. Well, that defeats the purpose, but it rarely offsets the total benefit, which is helpful. That's basically just like a demand curve, though, at the end of the day, right? It's like the price goes down, you consume more of something. Pretty much. Yeah. A lot of these consequential models might use those kinds of economic models to uh, determine that kind of stuff. Where, yeah, if the price of something is changing, you know, this also contributes to a bit of leakage that we might see in the carbon removal world as well, where, oh, maybe, you know, we pay this one provider to not cut down their forest um, when they would have otherwise, you know, regardless of one's views on the forestry offsets. But, but what if that raises the global price of timber and convinces someone on the margin, you know, across the world to get into the timber market and deforest their land when they wouldn't have otherwise? Well, that's leakage, you know, and it's definitely something you want to take into account as best you can. So best not to get involved in it, Siobhan, is what he's trying to say. <laughs> is that the lesson learned here? No, that can't be. That can't be. Something else that I want you to walk me through a little bit, because I'm just going to use this, this recording session as my own educational tool, is um, you used the example of photovoltaics before, but you've also used the example of photovoltaics in terms of learning rates. And I'd be curious for you to dig into that a little bit more and like using the example of photovoltaics and kind of what we've learned from that and how could we apply that to carbon removal technology, to these burgeoning technologies that we're trying to understand really well, really quickly. Um, so can you explain everybody what, what a learning rate is? Yeah, definitely. So learning rates have been um, kind of popularized by various scholars over the years, people like Jessica Transick and, and Greg Nemet, um, among many others. And there's a lot of uh, scholarly work on these. It's really just a lot of fascination because they tie in so closely with, with like technological and industrial progress. But kind of the initial learning rate, and I promise I won't start here and then say everything <laughs> that happens in between, but there was a paper, I think from 1936, from a scholar with the last name of Wright, uh, the, what, unrelated to the Wright brothers, but it was on the cost of airplanes. 
And it was talking about the factors that affect the cost of airplanes. And the scholar noticed that if the capacity for producing airplanes increased, that there was kind of a pretty consistent decrease in the unit cost of those airplanes. And that was one of the first, not necessarily the first, like very popular and, and notable uh, identifications of this phenomenon of learning rates, where when you produce more of something and increase its capacity, that the cost goes down. And this kind of fits into a broader typology of cost reduction methods, which um, as someone who works you know, very much on TEA and making these recommendations all the time, um, I'd be happy to talk through my whole typology there and, and really get into it. There's many different ways to decrease the cost of a technology, either intentionally or even sort of unintentionally. But uh, one of the big ones is this learning by doing, which kind of captures this uh, learning that happens over time, or literally just doing something over and over and over and over again, you'll figure out better ways to do it. And those ways will inevitably kind of bring the cost down. So this is often quantitatively described with a learning rate, which is the percentage cost reduction of a particular metric for each doubling of global cumulative capacity. Um, of that. So the classic case of solar is the cost per kilowatt of solar has gone down um, on average. There's different calculations, different estimates out there, but kind of like 20% with each doubling of the total global capacity of solar. And there's different reasons. Some of these reasons are intertwined with changing silicon costs and other changing feedstock costs. Some are intertwined with economies of scale of these huge, you know, gigawatt factories. Uh, largely in China that are pushing out all these panels or all, all these individual like uh, wafers and finding better ways to manufacture them. Um, it's tied to research breakthroughs, but there is this other aspect of learning that there's different theories uh, about why that happens. Oh yes. Yeah, so 20%. So yeah, the cost per kilowatt has gone down about 20% with each doubling of that. And we maybe could expect, you know, similar kinds of learning rates for particular technology categories within CDR. Okay. Uh, it's like, if we were to look at, let's look at like in situ mineralization, for example, because I feel like we always use DAC as the example. So I'm not going to softball you with DAC. Yeah. <laughs> let's do in situ mineralization. So I guess the other side of DAC, really. How much of the learning rate is determined by R&D versus determined by additional funding versus like, how how are we expediting that learning rate? Yeah, definitely. So, so yeah, there's actually been some scholarly work on this on actually trying to create these quantitative models to tease out contributions from different types of learning. So I think the paper it's by, um, it's from the Jessica Transic lab. And I think it's called like evaluating the causes um, of cost reduction for solar PV or something like that. We can uh, link to it. I can send along a link afterward, but um, they actually create a model within that study that can sort of tease these things out. But uh, in general, I kind of view, you know, cost reduction is this is this uh, typology from all these papers I've um, reviewed on the, on the subject. And this typology has both exogenous and endogenous factors. So endogenous factors would be things external to the particular technology under consideration, but might be inputs to those. So for the in situ mineralization, maybe it's the cost of uh, fresh water or the brine or whatever they're mixing with the CO2 to inject underground. Maybe it's the cost of steel that they're um, you know, building the equipment with. It's the cost of compressors or something. Anything that is not you know, core to that technology that's kind of outside that makes their job um, easier. Uh, those are kind of these exogenous factors. But then there's, there's this whole world of these endogenous 
factors. And so there, one is just economies of scale. And so if you operate at a larger and larger scale, you can take advantage of equipment uh, scaling, which is very common in the chemical engineering world. Often capacity, like equipment capacity is going to scale much more quickly than the cost of that equipment. So you can take advantage of that. Managerial cost distribution, bulk purchasing, those kinds of things that you get from just operating your technology at a larger scale. And so, yeah, that would be applied to the mineralization by just being larger and maybe purchasing this equipment in bulk or taking advantage of some of these, you know, sublinear scaling factors for compressors or whatever it might be that they use. And then there's this learning by researching, which is where you're actually doing intentional research to try to improve some kind of material or process or some aspect of your process that will help give it better performance, thus lower cost. And so for them, maybe it's identifying, I mean, this is maybe slightly exogenous too, but identifying different areas where it might be more stable to inject the CO2 or some kind of new method or some new additive to whatever they're injecting underground that they might discover via research. And then there's these, in part in the typology, there's these three categories of learning by deployment. And so there's learning by doing, learning by using, and learning by interacting. And so each of those has its own whole explanation, but yeah, simply that would be, okay, CarbFix is going to do this over and over and over and over again. Each time they do it, maybe they discover a faster way to set up the facility, which reduces uh, construction labor costs, or maybe they identify some way to set up the drill or the angle of the equipment or the pressure they're operating at or something that could really only be discovered uh, via trial and error that reduces the cost of their process. And really at different stages of a technology's life, these can all have different impacts. So in the beginning, maybe you need to do a lot of research to get something to an, to like an MVP or something, but naturally you're going to be limited if you're uh, in scale, the scale, if you're operating at the, you know, in the lab, but once you get to industrial production, then maybe you're going to squeeze out the final cost reduction from uh, finally scaling up the technology or Sometimes it depends on the type of technology. Some things are maybe more modular and so thus can take better advantage of learning by doing, but they can't take advantage of the economies of scale as much because maybe you're adding modules, but each module has the same cost. And so if you double the size mm. of the plant, well, it's just two times the modules and each module has a constant cost. And so you don't get those economies of scale. Now you can get them if you're producing those modules and you scale up the plant that's producing those and that's a separate conversation, but yeah, it's going to do. Do project developers have to go in thinking about this ahead of time? Do they have to go in and decide, like, I'm going to try and establish, like, how fast I can improve my project? What's my what's my learning rate on this by testing it? Or does it just kind of happen naturally? Is this an organic process or how much consciousness needs to go into establishing a learning rate and then improving it? I think it's a very organic process that has just kind of naturally unfolded really since the beginning of time, you know, millions of years ago when we were inventing those Julian Oldowan hand axes and, and choppers and so forth, there's trial and error, figuring out what works, what doesn't work, and just kind of continuing and diffusing those things that do work. And yeah, I don't think there's necessarily a huge self-awareness of this. Definitely a lot of the scholarly work that's gone on on the topic of technology learning. And yeah, I'm happy to send along to anyone a lot of different papers that I've collected over the years on, on the subject. Um, a lot of the scholarly work has been done in the past 10 years, maybe 20, even though I mentioned before, there was that one paper from the thirties covering it, but really it, it didn't pick up 
uh, for a while. And so my hope is that, and I think a lot of people who study this, their, their hope is that by having more awareness of these methods for improving technology and reducing its cost, that we'll better be able to take advantage of them. And so that it's definitely something I'm going to prioritize in my consultancy too, is when I'm working with you know a founder, really trying to encourage them to think about, okay, here's these different categories of cost reduction. How can you try to maximize these? It's definitely something you can see in a TEA, um, you know, when you're doing it and you have sublinear scaling factors for equipment costs or something like that. It's like, okay, this is economies of scale in motion. When you're talking to different suppliers and bulk purchases, you know, come up volume discounts, it's like that's economies of scale, you know, manifested. And so, yeah, I'm hopeful. I think a lot of people are hopeful that the more knowledge we have about it, the more aware we are, the more we'll be able to use these to our advantage and squeeze out even more cost reduction from what we're trying to do. Is there any part of the carbon removal ecosystem that has matured to the point that there are diseconomies of scale or not yet? Um, that's a good question. I would probably say not. There's nothing that comes to mind immediately. When I think of diseconomies of scale, um, the example I always think of is like for Ford, you know, it's easy, it's cheaper for them to make, you know, a million cars than 500, but it would get real expensive if they tried to make 500 billion cars. Um, because yeah, you just run into these, these scarcity and all that kind of stuff. Like I'm not a fair example, but it's kind of a silly one. Okay. Continue that. Yeah. yeah. It's just an extreme one to really think through that. I'm trying to, th- I don't really think, yeah, anything's like that big enough yet where it's running into something like that. Like people have probably gone down dead ends in terms of research and development, but that's kind of a different problem. In terms of economies of scale, what do you think the likelihood of reaching that kind of 10 gigaton that we're always talking about in the CDR community by 2050, what are the chances, what kind of learning rate would we need to get to a 10 gigaton per year carbon removal budget by 2050? Yeah. So the learning rate is a little more for cost than for deployment necessarily. Like, uh, and you know, I think a lot of people view these things as tied where it's like, oh, if we could get to, you know, $50 a ton and we wanted to do, you know, the 10 gigatons, then that's okay. I, my mind, of course, just blanked out at $500 billion, but like, yeah, you know, and then people might say, well, that's going to be such a negligible aspect of global GDP. Of course, we're going to, or, or gross world product. Of course, we're going to pay for it. But I think that's making a lot of assumptions there. And I think, uh, and this was discussed, I think a bit in our um, air miners thread as well, that at a certain point, especially when we talk about these massive scales, things become maybe a little less about cost and a little more just about the, you know, do we have the resources to mm-hmm. put toward these things? And then there's this question of, you know, given all of society's needs, what's the likelihood that we're going to devote the necessary uh, material inputs and energetic inputs and labor and just uh, just attention to this stuff? You know, with that said, though, I think that's where the benefits of this portfolio approach um, can come into play where it's like, okay, well, we have many different approaches to carbon removal. They have different uh, extent of uh, carbon storage. You know, they have different cost profiles. Some will work better in different geographies. You know, you can't do ocean alkalinity enhancement in Kansas. And so it's like, yeah, because of that kind of stuff, there might just be things that are um, more suited to different areas. And that maybe collectively through all the different CDR approaches, you know, all across the world that will all kind of collectively be able to work up to that goal. You know, I'm definitely hopeful and optimistic. I will say something about learning rates is 
they've been sort of grossly underestimated throughout history. Uh, there's this kind of, um, this new paper came out from um, Doyne Farmer, who, who does a lot of work on this and, and some of his colleagues showing how like, and then there's one graph in this paper, um, and I can send a link along to that as well, where they show like IEA projections for solar. So, so many years ago, and it's like, they kept thinking it was going to plateau and then they updated it and thought it was going to plateau at a higher level. And then they thought it was going to plateau at a higher level. And it's just been virtually a straight line going up of just more and more and more mm. solar. So I think, and of course that's solar and everybody always is appealing to solar, but the idea is that sometimes new technologies, especially in our current, like exponential age can be greatly underestimated and can grow a lot more quickly than many people might think. And I think you know, because there's so much excitement and enthusiasm for CDR generally, and there's so many people working on it and so much capital flowing into the space and now political attention on it, it should give us hope that things can scale very quickly. But yeah, I think it's at that scale, it becomes about resources and yeah, the likelihood that society will devote the resources necessary to reach that level, which I'm hopeful for. I'm sort of optimistic. Well, you know, it'll be at, at least at the gigaton scale. But from there, it's maybe a little hard to say. Are there good reasons to think that the trajectory of carbon removal or direct air capture will mirror that of solar? I'm sure. I mean, I, I find it to be a very convenient story to tell, and I so hope that it's true or even better than that. <laughs> but it does get trotted out quite a lot. I'm like Things also develop at different rates, too. It's not like technology has... A sort of like teleological process that it must follow to develop and it will reach this kind of cost curve. I don't, I think I'm being like a little unfair to make a point, but tell me, am I correct in my intuition here or how would you change how I characterize it? Oh, you're totally right. Different technologies have different learning rates. You know, a lot of the literature covers this famously, everyone, or a lot of people frequently follow up with, well, solar had this 20%, but nuclear, oh, nuclear, it has this negative learning rate. And there's a lot of different reasons why. One of the reasons is that so few comparatively nuclear plants have been deployed relative to solar wafers that have been created. Um, and so they haven't been able to take advantage of learning. And there's a whole other history as to why nuclear struggles. And I think that's why, you know, with the shift to small modular reactors, they're hoping to take advantage of some of that learning uh, with these new companies and maybe kind of change the story for nuclear a bit, which I definitely hope to see. But yeah, I think a core issue that we face is that, like, well, solar's partially so great because it produces energy, which people are willing to pay for. Whereas with CDR, as we all know, and I'm you know sure it's been covered many times, it's the like the business model is a bit fraught because we're depending on. I mean, in a broad sense, it's the opposite of emitting. Where when we emit, we privatize a benefit and socialize a cost. If you just set up a machine to do CDR, it's the exact opposite. You're privatizing this huge cost to doing this machine, but then you're socializing this benefit of you know, lower carbon to everybody in the world. And so then the question becomes, who's willing to incur private costs for public benefits? You know, and, and yeah, like there's the volunteer carbon market and offsets, but in some systemic sense, if you're linking emitting one ton here to sucking another ton out over here, then kind of that system is really just carbon neutral in a sense. And it's not providing this carbon negativity or carbon removal. Looking for, of course, it helps build up the ecosystem and um, helps us get down the cost curve in these things. And yeah, that's definitely maybe going to be helpful for like cleaning up the residual emissions, you know, this so-called hard to abate final four gigatons. And maybe we can lean into um, VCMs for that. 
or hopefully, you know, it'll be possibly regulated at some point. But beyond that, it starts to become like, wow, we really need a government or a philanthropist to kind of cover the remainder here. And yeah, I know this is maybe sort of veering from your original question, but I think it's part of the trouble um, and why we may see certain scaling issues. Because right now it's a seller's market, but when CDR uh, become, you know, kind of equalizes and there's like just as many sellers as there are buyers, you know, we're going to see more competition. And then it might be sort of like, okay, well, what's the business model from here unless we have some kind of large scale government procurement? Dude, I haven't heard someone bring up free ridership in like years. This is the first time I've heard someone bring up the free rider problem. And it's probably since Nori's founding. So like four or five years, because it has been a seller's market and there's no supply and it's all bought up immediately years in advance. So it has not been a problem, but it'll clearly it'll cycle back. Right. Really well, and I, I really like that. I'm going to use that phrasing too of like the privatizing versus public benefit. I feel like that was, a, I'm yeah. stealing that phrasing, Grant. <laughs> Please. Um, yeah. That was really helpful. Grant, I feel like there are dozens of CDR startups who would want to snatch you up and bring you onto their team. Why, why did you start a consultancy? Really, I did it just so I could help as many people as possible. You know, one of my favorite things that I you know was doing over the past couple of years uh, while I was in my previous positions was just um, posting in air miners, you know, and just talking with different people and having all these meetings and really just trying to help drive things forward because I think it's so important. And, you know, I got to this point where it's like, you know, also, or I've sort of realized, oh, you know, once I sort of build the models for the startup, once they have the cost model and the emissions model, and they know how to use it, the marginal benefit of my services or my time there decreases a bit because they already have the model. And then it's like, okay, I can do refinements and stuff, but it's not necessarily a full-time job. So it's sort of almost no surprise for TEA because there's many LCA consultancies out there that partner with companies and do full LCAs of their services. But when the assessment's done and they have the results, the consultancy can move on to help the next person, the next person, the next person. So in some ways, it's not so different for TEA where I can you know, partner with them, do, do the assessment, help them get up to speed. Um, and then move on to the next company because really everyone needs this help, but there's this also a severe shortage of people with this skill set. Um, and increasingly people are learning it and the global CO2 initiative, you know, they, we tried when I was there and they're still trying to do workforce development to train more um, students and, um, you know, graduate students and those types of people with these skills to come into the field and just putting resources out there so people can teach themselves. But there's way more people who need this, these services than those who can provide them. And um, yeah, that paired with the short-term nature of some of the work, it's just like, okay, I just got to do my own thing now and just help as many people as I possibly can. So yeah, that was kind of the the theory going into it. And is it going well and, to be able to say with whom you're working on? I'm sorry, Shiv. Did, did no, you... I had the, the exact same question. Oh, okay. Tell us uh, well, I just officially launched last week and I, you know, I've gotten like a lot of different requests. I've had like maybe 20 you know, initial meetings already set up what? in the first like two weeks, That's amazing. which is like, yeah, I, I, it was unbelievable, really. I mean, I knew like, okay, people, you know, want these services or whatever, um, you know, and of course, not all the meetings will necessarily translate into hardcore work that gets done. And some are just, just relationship building or just helping people giving a little bit of feedback or advice or whatever. But yeah, no, I already have, you know, one committed client. I'm already working on their project. And yeah, I'm really just hoping to help as many people as possible because it's my it's my favorite thing to do in air miners um for free and it's like okay you know if i can make a career out of this um just do it full time i mean what what better thing is there 
I'm, I'm glad I snuck in under the radar then because I feel like I've gotten so much free help from Grant over the last two years. <laughs> and and truly, like I think a lot of people in the Airminders community have. I think you're you're quick to say, yeah, I'll review that document for you, or I'll I'll share this data with you so that it helps you out. So so thank you for all the free help I've gotten in the past, and and I'll be more conscious of your time going forward. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's all good. I'm still gonna yeah help some people for free, but um, yeah, once it turns into like a whole like build the TA for us, it's like well, it's my job. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if someone wanted to try desperately to hire you and push out the other people in front of them in line. How do they do that? How do you want people to engage with you? Where can they go? Oh, I just have my website. Wait, are you asking like, like generally, like literally if someone wants to be first and push the other people out? What... It's called being banterous or chummy. Uh, and it works sometimes, <laughs> but maybe in this case, it did not. I can be clear. Tell people where they can find your website and blah, blah, blah. And links in the show notes. Oh, yeah. Carbonbaseconsulting.com. Snatched up the good URL. And uh, yeah, I'm on LinkedIn too. And I have a Calendly link there where people can schedule a consultation and also find me on Airminers. Are people making that carbon-based versus carbon-cringe kind of comparison with you or no? Not yet. <laughs> so I guess yeah. you're... Wait, wait, what's the carbon-based versus carbon-cringe comparison? It's like, it's like the Gen Z antonym, right? That something is either based or it's cringe. I'm learning something new now. Generational. <laughs> yeah. Don't worry. I'm, I'm, I'm not like a first-order native to that. I got brought into it by <laughs> being an old man near it. <laughs> so don't don't feel bad. I'm glad you noticed that though, because that, yeah, when I was picking a name, it's like carbon-based, like carbon-based life forms is sort of what I was going for. And then I was also thinking, oh, obviously it's carbon-centric consulting because I do the environmental stuff. But I also had that thought of like carbon-based, like like the opposite of cringe. So thank you for picking up on that. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I saw Jack and Dreesen, maybe someone else making memes about that. Oh, Anyways, they, beat, they beat us to it. They beat us to it. It's okay. You can do another one. And he doesn't own carbon-based or carbon-cringe. Let's be clear, Jack, if you're listening. <laughs> don't act like you own it. Okay. Well, thanks for being here, Grant. That was a lot of fun. For sure. Yeah. Thanks for giving me a platform to spew my views. Spew your views? I feel like you were very measured and <laughs> interesting. It was not vitriolic or propagandistic in any way that I could detect. Is it just really good propaganda? Is that what happened? No you comment. can find more of his views on air miners, people. If you're not already active, um, go go follow what what he's talking about. Alas, you cannot find him on Twitter. Um, you're gonna have to hire him. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> Shiv, Asa, thanks for being here too. Thank Always you. a pleasure. Yeah, thank you all very much. Yeah, uh, our pleasure to have you. And if you liked listening to this, please give us a great rating or review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Uh, thanks for listening. Send this to a friend who needs to learn what TEA is. And thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for listening. If you could please subscribe and give us a great rating and review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify, that'd be much appreciated. It helps us get our content out to more people. You can sign up for our newsletter at nori.com, follow us on social media, and we will catch you next time.